0: Hi, my name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Bevy Smith is a personality who enjoys legendary status from downtown to Harlem and beyond, thanks to her growing media presence on shows like Bravo's Fashion Queens and Fox's Page Six TV. She currently hosts Sirius XM's Bevelations on Radio Andy and is a frequent guest on The View, Good Morning America, CBS Morning Show, Access Hollywood. We were fellow travelers on the downtown hip-hop fashion and media scene. Bevy was in charge of luxury ad sales at Vibe and later at Rolling Stone. She had attitude, style, panache, yes, panache, and a larger-than-life presence that was matched by an uncensored way with words that left everyone around her gagging with astonishment and delight. At Paper, we invited her to pretty much every party we ever had. So here we are catching up after so much has happened, from the personal to the political, local to global. I can think of no one better to talk to right now than Bevy Smith. So Thank welcome, you, David. Bevy. Thank Yay, you, my welcome.
1: love. I'm so happy to be here with you. What a great intro. Normally I get, here's Bebby Smith. So this is a very nice way to be introduced.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I need people to know. They'll find out for themselves in a short while, I'm sure, as we get talking. So, what I'm, what I'm referring to, panache and all, born and raised in Harlem and living in Harlem today, the epicenter of African-American culture. So what is life like in Harlem in the throes of Corona and Black Lives Matter?
1: Wow. Well, that's... Well, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> very heavy and two separately, very heavy topics. So coronavirus, as you know, disproportionately affected black people and brown people more than it did white people. Well, actually I can just say black people because even the numbers for Hispanics were lower than than, than deaths in the black community. So I had coronavirus, my sister had coronavirus, Several members of her family had coronavirus, and my dad passed away of coronavirus.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. May you rest in peace.
1: Yes. My dad, Gus Lee Smith. So, uh, you know, for me, the pandemic was incredibly personal, and it was also terrifying because I live alone. So I was very concerned when I had it because I was like, am I going to survive it? And it was very scary to be living by yourself. And I contracted coronavirus. I want to say probably I started feeling sick March 12th. Wow, that was um, early, right? It was very early, right in the beginning. And I remember March 13th, I said, oh, you know what? I think I'm going to quarantine myself. And that was right around the time when the city started slowly closing down. So when I first felt like maybe I have it, I panicked because my dad was already in a rehab facility, but my mom lives by herself because my dad was in the rehab facility. And so um, it was my plans to bring my mother to my apartment so that she could quarantine with me. So that's the reason why I started quarantining so early because I was like, I have to make sure that I either have it or don't have it before I bring this lady over here. So I quarantined and I was sick for like, Nine days, I'd had um, a couple of emergency room doctors on my Revelations radio show. And, um, you know, I was talking to them offline and everything. And nine days later, I still was sick. So I was like, I better have it. So I pulled some strings because remember, the early days, David, there was no testing being done.
0: Right? They said,
1: don't even come to the hospital unless you literally cannot breathe. Yeah, and then I I could breathe, but I was like, I need to know what's going on with me before I bring my mom to my house. So I went and got tested on the twenty second, and the results came back on the twenty fourth.
0: Wow! So, but you got through it, thank God. Mm -hmm. I got good now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great. And your mom is she's good too.
1: My mom is great. Um, My dad passed away on April eleventh, and his was very swift. The rehab facility called us on a Thursday and said they were moving him to a hospital. And on Saturday, he passed away.
0: That's a lot to process. That's a
1: lot to process. There was a study that was just done that talked about how so many white people literally don't really know anyone that's died from coronavirus. But every black person you talk to knows someone, knows several someones. And that's certainly my case. And so, you know, When you think about how it affects a black community, like you're losing valuable information. Like, so my dad was 95. So he's a World War II veteran and he survived Jim Crow South. So now you've lost a piece of living history.
0: You can't replace that. That's something that you only know because you've experienced it.
1: Yeah, exactly. So thank God that, you know, I have been prescient enough to like actually record my dad talking about his life, talking about his childhood, and he was really candid. He talked about what he was most proud of, his loves, his passions, and different things like that. My book comes out in January. It's called Revelations, Lessons from a Mother, Auntie and Bestie. And my daddy was alive when I finished the book, but then when I got the copy edits, I was sick. And then it wasn't until May where I touched the book again. And then I realized I had to write a whole new chapter for my dad. But then I realized I should let my father speak for himself. So I took the interview that he had done for this Instagram site. And that's my dad's final words in the chapter.
0: Oh, well, nice. Nice testimonial Yeah. to have in there that way. Did you update it as well for Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter?
1: Yeah, You know, it was interesting because I didn't even realize how much race had affected me in my career. Because as you know, David, I worked in very all white spaces. Yes, I worked at vibe, but the work that I did was luxury fashion, which is dominated by white people. So I wasn't even really fully aware, even when I was writing it and talking about race and talking about the way I was seen in the space, I wasn't aware how heavy the load was for me. So when I'm rereading it during the social unrest that kind of centered around Mr. Floyd's murder, I was like, oh my God, you have a lot in here about race, about pay parity, about being the only one in spaces. But I wasn't even aware that I was writing that kind of book. But then once Mr. Floyd died and I read it again, I was like, this is a very timely book.
0: So you feel that you had been discriminated over the years in your career?
1: I, I mean, you know what's so interesting? Because while I don't know that I was discriminated against, I know that there was certainly, I had a lot of racial microaggressions, far more than macro. I had, I had very few macro racial aggressions, but I have a plethora of micro ones. You know, just by working at a book like Vibe magazine, which is predominantly read by black and brown people. And then you're going into these white luxury fashion houses to try and convince them to advertise. And you're being met with, we don't think that your reader is our customer. See, that's, that's a microaggression.
0: So how did you sell them finally? I mean, I know you were a big success. Was it that the culture, sort of the overall culture caught up to Vibe and it was no longer, you know, the the case that... uh, No, no, because they
1: still don't advertise in those magazines. Hmm. They still don't advertise in Essence magazine, you know? So, no, the culture didn't catch up. Even though,
0: like, Gucci now is widely popular in the Black community, right? Well, no,
1: it always has been. Yeah. So so just to give you a little bit of background on Black people in style, when Reconstruction happened, right before the clam really came to be, we were set free. Shout out to Juneteenth, which people are finally acknowledging. And um, we did not get the 40 acres in the mule. But what we did have was a strong work ethic. And so that's why you read about reconstruction, which is one of the most important parts of history in regards to American history. Black people built schools. They built towns. They built businesses. They were very thriving. But one of the things that the Klan did was when they came into those towns like Tulsa and bombed Tulsa and looted and rampaged and killed people. And they destroyed of a thriving black community. And that happened in a lot of other places all over. And they stole people's land and all the things. But also one of the things that they did was they spread rumors that black people were unkept and dirty, which is why to this day we over-index when it comes to personal grooming. No, literally. And, 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 you know, there's all these memes that go on in social media about white people like not washing their legs or like, you know, or taking a bath every couple of days. Like these are like tropes, but there's truth in them because they're coming from a place of, we were thought to be unkept and dirty and things like that. So we made it a point to prove that we were not. So there's not a black girl in the country of a certain age that didn't, always every Sunday have to put on a nice dress and have our legs breathe and have our hair done. So that's a part of our culture, looking good. So that's why when I went over to Europe, I would take the James Van books because I wanted them to see that it's not a trend that we're well-dressed. Puffy didn't teach us how to dress. Mary J. Blige didn't teach us how to dress. Beyonce didn't teach us how to dress. That was always a part of who we were because if you look at James Van Der Zee, which is we're looking at 1920s portraits of of Harlem, people were done, people were well dressed, people were immaculate in their presentation. Totally, yeah.
0: Always and my had the par- best style, and
1: yes. And my parents, who are from the South, they brought that with them. My mother has beautiful portraits of herself, you know, from when she was even living in North Carolina, Poe South. You know, my daddy came to New York from um, after he got out of World War II, he had a snazzy suit. Style has always been a part of our DNA, innate style.
0: Yeah, and and even for me, as I recall, you know, having come out of the hippie movement days when you basically didn't bathe didn't do you know wore old clothes and whatever and then encountering the early like hip-hop scene and seeing how fresh everyone was about their clothes the word yeah. was fresh you know the yes the sneakers were clean don't you dare get a spot on them this even the jeans had a crease yeah uh, and that's kind of changed the world, and as far as I'm concerned, my world at that time, for sure. It did change the world. And so we why hip hop is now a trillion
1: dollar business. It's a trillion dollar industry. It really yeah. did change the world.
0: You can't even put a number on that yeah. industry right now, I feel, yeah. because it's, it goes across. It's every, so
1: pervasive.
0: Yeah. It's yeah. pop music right now.
1: Black culture is pop culture. Period. Point blank. None of it exists. Justin Bieber just came out and talked about that. He said that, you know, he wanted to recognize that his career does not exist without black music. Justin Timberlake should actually come out and say the same thing. You know, you know well, so, everyone
0: knows it. I mean, yeah. I, you know, they have to see that, uh, you know, yeah. and try. And if you want to be an intelligent person today, yeah. part of the culture, you have to recognize that. Uh, was it different in Europe in, in the terms of recognition and acceptance of you and, and what you were selling and vibe? Was it compared to. Uh, well, uh, definitely, the US? they were
1: better than Americans. It was certainly more open to the conversations than Americans were. Um, and you I would found, charm
0: them, I'm sure. I mean, you would like be amazing, <laughs> yeah. have them on the floor laughing. Yeah. Well,
1: you know, one, I understood my culture. And I understood my history. So I went over there, like I said, with James Van books. I also did my own street style books that were copied after Mr. Cunningham's um, New York Times, Bill Cunningham's New York Times column. And uh, this is far before street style became just like, you know, common. But I used to go to all the parties that Vibe would have. And I would take pictures on a um, disposable camera because it's before digital cameras certainly before camera phones. And then I would get them developed, the people that were at vibe parties in fabulous clothes. And I would make my own lookbook. And I would take that over to Europe, along with James Van And I would say, so I'm showing you that this is a cultural movement. This is not a trend. So you don't have to worry about, oh, wow, so yeah, maybe black kids are being Fendi now. But you know, in a year they'll they'll toss that away. It's like no, no, no. This is like a part of who we are. So you know, the way I approached it really worked because I couldn't sell it against the demographics, because you know, if you're looking at a GQ or a Vogue or something, our numbers didn't add up. But culturally, the cultural importance of who the vibe audience was, and also the way that we put together the clothes which is far more original and innovative than, say, a Vogue reader or a GQ reader, that resonated with them.
0: Yeah, and and Paper had a similar approach where, as our culture that we were reflecting was happening under the popular culture, you know, the mainstream culture. Yeah. And we were selling our ads on the same way, pretty much. So we had a lot in common in that respect. And that, yeah, you know, but vibe in those days was kind of uh, you know thriving, right? Had a lot of money. Quincy yeah. Jones was mm-hmm. behind it. How was that experience? Being all dressed up and fancy and going to Europe, and how did that make you feel?
1: Well, it was interesting because I had come from an advertising agency. I was a media director before I went on to the opposite side of doing sales. So I came from a luxury background, and I came from a white luxury background, as in. Everyone at the company was white, except for me. And, and then maybe like, I, I think I hired a black assistant and things like that. So that was interesting. And that was the first time I went to Europe for the shows when I was at Pete Rogers. So by the time I get the vibe, which I guess is probably one of the reasons why they hired me, is I already had experience in fashion. So I wasn't an ingenue. I wasn't like, oh my God, what is this? What's happening? Right. <laughs> when I arrived, I was prepared to do my work. So I didn't arrive to vibe green. I was already a seasoned media professional. But I think that a lot of times that got lost in the fact that I was also very flamboyant and very um, gregarious. I wasn't like a traditional salesperson. You were bevy. I was very bevy. So,
0: <laughs>
1: But then when you sat down and talked to me, especially when we were going over the business of fashion, you were like, oh, yeah. Maybe she did go to NYU. Yes. Yeah. You know, you know, but, but it was an interesting thing to see people like kind of be like, oh, I love going out to dinner with you. But then when I had to negotiate, I was a very good negotiator to this day. You know, I have talent agencies and all of that to represent me, but I love negotiating. I'm still kind of like in my agent's business. I'm always like, okay, what did you counter with? Okay. Well, ask them for this then. We can't get that, and then what about if we prograte that into like I'm that person? I'm a very bossy client.
0: Yeah, you have to be right. Yeah. You don't want to let them just make all the decisions mm-hmm. on their own, Not,
1: especially because I have the skill set to actually negotiate my own deals.
0: Yeah, then you went on to Rolling Stone, where you actually turned from an all you know black based publication to something that an was all
1: white. Based All motivation. white and
0: also they barely even covered black culture Right a, at the same time. I mean, yeah. I, you know, they were always really slow on picking up on that. Yeah. And so that didn't, probably didn't last very long, right?
1: Well, you know, I went to Rolling Stone with the idea that I wasn't going to stay there for that long. All this is recounted in my book, Revelations, Lessons from a Mother of the can't bestie. wait to
0: read it, yeah. Yeah,
1: but I actually went to Rolling Stone with the understanding that I was going there to actually make. I think maybe they paid me $100,000 more than I was re- making at Vibe. And to take that money to kind of sock it away, because it, oh. was a, it was my intention to quit doing ad sales. At Vibe, I was trying to quit doing ad sales. And I wanted to go into entertainment. And Vibe just would not, they didn't see it that way. They were like, well, for a myriad of reasons, I, I tried to create a lot of different types of positions for myself at Vibe that weren't sales. They just were like, no, but why wouldn't you do sales? You make you make so much money. Like, Keep doing that. I was like, okay, I don't want to do that.
0: Right. Um, you're so, making us money too, right? Right, making- exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: But I didn't want to do it. And so I went to Rolling Stone with the idea that I would do it for a very short period of time to the end of the year. So you get your end of the year bonus. And then I would quit. And that's exactly what I did. I was there only so for 10 months, but it was all a plan. It wasn't like I got there and I was shocked that it was an all-white environment. I mean, I knew what it was, you know? Uh, the same way Condé Nast, if I had gone to a Condé Nast book, it would have been the same experience. All-white enclave, you know what I mean? So I wasn't shocked about publishing. I remember people used to ask me if I did do you want to go to Condé? And I remember, you know, I was friends with a couple of the publishers and everything, they'd be like, wouldn't you want to come over here? And I'd be like, no. I thought of myself as a cultural liaison at five. Yes, I was selling ad pages, but I was also educating people about my culture and making them see how rich and full it was. So to go to a, a Conde Nast or something and do what? Pedal ad pages? What's in it for me besides money? Wouldn't have been fulfilling. ride was very fulfilling.
0: And besides that, you were kind of also prescient because the magazine industry was going to collapse. I know, right? Soon thereafter.
1: I got out right on time. I still had all my time cards. I still had all my first class travel. I remember my expense account was larger than the publishers. (laughs) I mean, I I had it all going on. Like, you know, and that was one of the biggest shocks when I left. I was shocked at how much money I hadn't been spending of my own, Uh, you know. Before I quit, I was on the T&E. So my entire life was expensed.
0: I hear my you. entire yeah. life
1: was expensed. <laughs> and it was really shocking.
0: And when you, you saying you wanted to go entertainment. What did that mean to you then? What did you have in mind?
1: Oh, I quit my job and I told my um, publisher at the time. I said, I want to, I went into resign. It was in January. And I said, I'm, I'm leaving. He said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to sing, dance, act, <laughs> juggle, fire, eat. Type rope walker, anything that I want to do, any creative thing I, I want to do, I'm going to pursue it.
0: And what was the first thing that uh, type rope walking? What was <laughs> yeah <that>?
1: exactly? <laughs> you know what I did the first thing I did was really I started taking a, a plethora of classes. So I took writing classes, I took acting classes, I took improv classes, I took photography classes, I took DJ classes, and I just started just doing the things I've always been interested in.
0: You wrote for paper.
1: I wrote for paper. I was going to get to that, David.
0: (laughs) Couldn't wait.
1: My my paper magazine family, and you guys are mentioned in the book.
0: Oh, sweet.
1: Of course, you and Kim and Mickey. I'm in Hunter. It's because, you know, when I told you guys I was quitting and I was going to try and do all these different things and I said I wanted to write, you guys were like, okay, you can write for us. And you don't even remember this but the first ever cover that Rihanna had was a paper cover, and I wrote it.
0: Yeah. No, I remember it. You do remember that? Yeah. And, yeah. Because uh, I remember, because I also went out, we shot a video with her on a bicycle in, mm-hmm. uh, yes. in, in Soho, NoHo, yeah. when I was yep. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm still a huge fan of hers. I love yeah. her.
1: Yeah. But yeah, you guys were a very big part of... Um, Kind of me tapping into my creativity which I will always appreciate which is why when you called me I was like oh yeah yeah of course I'll do it for you because you guys you. were so good to me like why wouldn't I you know
0: you know we always had a, a great time right we always had a lot to talk about yeah. from politics to trash yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah exactly. so
0: <laughs> exactly <laughs> we hit the gamut yeah. so so what was the first show that you did then you know when you started working on tv first right
1: yeah interestingly enough when i was still at vibe because i went back to vibe as a as a fashion editor at large so i went on the editorial side of vibe after i left rolling stone so that's something that's very rarely ever done people don't live on both sides of the masthead so i was once a publishing person and then i went back as an editorial person before I left Vibe the first time, when I was still an advertising executive, they created the Vibe Awards and it was being produced by Queen Latifah. It was a very big deal. And it was on the CW. Remember when that was a network? CW, CW, sure. And um, they were doing a pre show, a red carpet pre show. And they asked me if I would do the red carpet with Farnsworth Bentley, who used to be the guy who was like Puff Daddy's valet. The oh, right, with guy. the umbrellas, yeah, mm-hmm. for sure, yeah. But who's an amazing, talented person who's now, like, going on to become Kanye West's creative director and all kinds of things. He's incredible. But they asked me to do the red carpet with him. And I had never done TV, and I never even thought about doing TV at that point. And I did the red carpet, and I loved it. And that's how I decided, maybe I want to try this for real.
0: And it worked out. Do you, it you it have some out
1: great. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was literally great at it. It was something that... <laughs> Came very easy to me.
0: Surprise. <laughs> yeah. I mean,
1: it was a surprise. I was like, I think I can do it. And that's one of the things I talk about in my book is that, you know, I'm always up for a challenge. Whenever I'm given an opportunity and it seems very challenging, I will always go for it. I am that type of person. And so if I fail, well, you know, it doesn't even hurt that bad to fail. You get up and you try something else.
0: Because you're also doing speeches and, and public speaking. Oh, I do and a slew of public speaking.
1: Mm-hmm. I do a slew of that.
0: And what is your motivational story, basically? How does that go?
1: It's really based around how I changed my life at the age of 38. Like, so 38 oh. years old to go into TV. Of course, you can be on TV as a 38-year-old woman. But most people age into being on TV at that age. Because that's middle age. and um. Traditionally, you're a young woman in your twenties, at your most, the height of your physical beauty, and then you know you get a TV job, and then you know you age into becoming a 38 year old person, and you age into being 50, and then if you're lucky, you can be Barbara Walters and be 80 on TV. But traditionally, no, it's a young woman's game to enter it. So I beat the odds. You know, I say in my book, you know, I. It's so weird, my past successes really fueled my um, kind of confidence because I'd already beat the odds so many times before. I had been a black girl from Harlem that really kind of like took on fashion and won. I just felt like, why wouldn't they want me on TV? I felt like I had a really unique point of view.
0: Well, there was no one like you, so which either is like a good or a bad thing, right? So yeah. it wasn't as if you were, okay, here's someone else who's kind of can step into this position. You're a woman, you're an African-American woman, you're plus size.
1: No, I'm not plus size.
0: You're not plus size? What size no, are you?
1: I'm not plus size.
0: You're no. you're not the
1: average way. Waif- I'm not. Okay, so, so that's, that's a great thing for us to talk about. Okay. So here's the thing. I am not, A skinny white woman. And so for so long, that was the standard of beauty.
0: That's what I'm talking about.
1: Right. But that doesn't make me plus.
0: Okay, sorry.
1: That simply makes me not the standard size of what they call what used to be determined as beauty. So.
0: But there's not too many like you on TV.
1: Yes, but you Physically. can find a lot of plus, you can find plus size women on TV.
0: Oh, I see. So it's even harder in a way.
1: So in the way, I'm like in the in-between space because I'm really actually, I hate to even get into size conversations because it's very really offensive you. for a lot of women, but I'll just put it to you like this. I wear designer clothes. There's no designer that actually makes plus size clothes. Okay. So.
0: My what, bad. Bad term, but you know what I mean. You, you weren't like what we, what people expect to see on TV.
1: Right. Wasn't a skinny waif. <laughs> In my book, I talk about, I don't like to talk about size. One, it never, ever preoccupied me. My size. Ever. What I like the way I look.
0: Yeah, you know? that's, that's who you are. We love Bev as she is. No, but... Even more
1: so than that, I love me the way I am. And that's mm-hmm. a part of the thing that I'm in mean, my motivation when I talk about with my motivational speeches is that I don't even look for anyone else to give me approval on the way I am. I look in the mirror and I'm like, you look really good. You know, I love my curves. I am a quintessential curvy woman. Like I am, you know, an old school, Mae West curvy I'm truly be a curvy woman. And that's something that typically wasn't celebrated. Now of course you have all different body types showing up in media and that's a very healthy thing. But for the longest time people really could not wrap their heads around the fact that if you weren't a size 4, you must be a size 14 or you must be a size 24. You know what I mean? Like just it didn't work for people. So now maybe, perhaps it does. It's funny because when I was writing the book, they wanted me to really talk about size. I was like, I'm not...
0: you feel like Kim Kardashian had a lot to do with that? and no. Changing the perception no. of... No. Okay. I was pissed when y'all put her on the cover. <laughs> Sorry? I was pissed when y'all put her on the cover. Oh, oh, tell me why. But the Jean-Paul Gould yes. picture,
1: no, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. So no, she's not someone who ever enters... My consciousness, like, oh, my God, Kim Kardashian is like my role model. I'm from Harlem. Women with great bodies walk around all day long in my community. Why would I ever have to look to the outside world for someone who probably may not be um, the way God made them?
0: hmm Yes. Okay. I think I know what you're talking about. You know, you, like, you so. Surgically enhanced. I've never looked at her like, oh my gosh. But what about the public? I'm thinking that, you know, that the general public. The white
1: people. Okay, so let's talk about this woman. One of the best things that come out of this social uprising that we're going through is that black people, especially black people in spaces like media, whether you're a writer or a musician or an actor, any of it, the white gaze is a rap meaning and the gaze is g a z e white okay, gaze thank you. something yeah. yeah so it's something that tony morrison talked about the white gaze and it was like doing your work but expecting it to be seen through the prism of whiteness and then kind of you know altering it or or needing the accolades or the uh approval so maybe there's someone out there that's like, oh my gosh, Kim K may like, but that's no, not my story, morning glory. And I um I think now because I have my radio show and I, I talk to celebrities a lot, like every day. And a lot of them are pushing back on the idea that they need a Emmy or a Grammy or an Oscar or Tony to be acknowledged as a great artist. You know, people I think are really coming to grips with these are outside entities that were not created with us in mind. You know, Debbie Dugan, when she was over at the Grammys, she was a whistleblower and she talked about how the Grammys were biased towards black artists and female artists. So when you see someone who was the head of the Grammys tell you that if you're a Black musician who's gotten passed over time and again by the Grammys, how can they hold any real power over you anymore? Now you know from someone who once ran it that the deck was stacked against you to begin with. That was all political, and that it was all backdoor dealings. And so you kind of stop giving it that much weight in your life or in your artistry
0: well i see also that you know within the black community is becoming so strong and the artists finding approval within their own community and strength there seems to be much bigger than ever before. So that outside uh, recognition doesn't matter in the same way. At this point, like it's sort of the Grammys are have to catch up, you know, everybody is yeah. sort of like way left behind. And certainly after the Black Lives Matter, everybody's jumping through hoops, trying to acknowledge that. What can they yeah. do in their company corporate? I know, mm-hmm. for example, Anna Wintour. At, uh-huh. I touched that button. Go. Bevy, what do you think? I mean,
1: just whatever about these things. This is like so late. You know, for you to be in a place for 32 years and say you didn't know, really? Did you seem incredibly bright to me? Mm -hmm. So, I I mean, is this willful ignorance? I don't know. So, only thing I want to do is use my platforms to fight for pay hey parity for me and my, my folks that work in entertainment. I'm going to call out systemic racism, wherever I see it. You no, know, um, the last show I was on, every time we had an opening, I sent them names of black candidates for behind the scenes. Cause we need below the line people. We need producers and directors and writers on TV shows. It's great that I'm on screen. But it's more important for me to have a black director, a black producer, a black writer. It's important for me to be able to get my nephews a PA job. Because those jobs are union. So you can create a whole great life for yourself. So there are certain things that um I'm fighting for. And then of course I definitely was standing with all the young people that worked in magazines. You know, even paper magazine got embroiled in it, you know. Right. And I stood with them, Michael loved Michael. I stood with them because it's important. There should be no media entity that profits off of black culture, but then doesn't hire and foster black talent. It's not okay. So everyone needs to be called out. Everyone needs to be called on the carpet. And everyone's got to right their wrongs. And it just is what it is. And I was talking to some of my white friends in media, and I was like, it's going to seem tough at the beginning because you guys are going to be like, well, I can't say this and I can't say that. And I said, but just remember, since Black people have been let into corporate America, which really only started happening really in the 60s, okay? So we're not even that far into it. We have had to watch what we say. We have had to watch how we dress. We have had to watch how we present ourselves. So now, welcome to the party. Watch what you say. Watch how you present yourself. Watch how you, you know. Yeah. You have to think about some shit now. The white gaze is a wrap. The kind of delusion that white culture is the dominant culture. Not so much, because when you look at what's going on in popular culture, it all stems from black culture. So that means that we should be getting these jobs. We should be having our say. We should be creating our own narratives. We should be running our shows.
0: Definitely. Could I throw some names at you, like to you know, sort of do like a hot take with you? Oh, sure the way you used to do it on the, <laughs> some of your shows mm-hmm. tiktok <laughs> kids what about jennifer lopez and arod like they have this big tiktok yeah presence. but
1: still i still feel like it's like a kids medium
0: kamala harris
1: oh kamala a fighter a fighter a fighter
0: so you would uh, like to see her as vice president, perhaps?
1: Oh, I, I welcome Kamala, Stacey Abrams. It's my girl in Atlanta, the mayor. Keisha Lance Bottoms. Yeah. I'd like to see any of those amazing black women be VP.
0: Cardi B is canceled. Have you been following that at yes. all?
1: Yes. Well, that's not the truth. Someone that authentic could never be canceled.
0: So you think she's authentic?
1: Yes. Oh my God. Yes. I love Cardi B. I always have. I knew her before. Um, I didn't know her, know her, but my friend Lee Daniels, the film director. Yes. He's a person who really kind of follows people on social media, and as long as they have something provocative and evocative to say, he wants to follow them. So Cardi B, when she was just a stripper before she had her teeth fixed, was on. Instagram, and she would do these wild, amazing takes. And Lee used to send me Instagram videos of Cardi B. So I have to say that she's been this way, and that's the reason why it works.
0: Mel Gibson recently called out by Winona Ryder for anti-Semitism. Yeah.
1: Well, he's been a racist. Now, talking about cancel culture, I mean, he was found to be a, a racist and an anti-Semitic and a misogynist asshole in the like early 2000s. And then they decided he had done enough penance, like for 10 years, he went away and, and you know, lived off of his hundreds of millions of dollars and they let him back in. And he did a movie with fucking um, Mark Wahlberg and, and everything was okay. You know.
0: Joe Biden. Our next president. Amen. Meghan Markle and Prince Harry.
1: Not a Royal Watcher. I'll say this about them. He's a brave man to leave behind everything he's ever known. For the love of a woman. So he's keeping in um in in tradition of his great uncle, right? Who was the king who gave it all up for um right. the Duchess of Cornwall.
0: Yeah. Who was like uh yeah. I've yes. I've watched the TV show.
1: <laughs> yeah. well, I- they're, they're very interesting to me because they, they broke the rules. But he was a Nazi sympathizer, as was she, so welcome,
0: Exactly. Fuck him. Andy Cohen. A mensch. A mensch. We love yeah. him, right? Oh, yeah. He's a mensch. Do you have any shows in development right now?
1: I have a show that I can't talk about, but it'll be on this summer.
0: You can't talk about it? It's a talk no. show?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, it's a talk show. All right, it'll be on this summer. This summer? That one year from now. No. Or this this summer. This summer. That's soon. Mm-hmm. And you can't talk about it yet. No. No. Scoop, mm-hmm. scoop. Uh,
1: no, I wish I could <laughs> give it to you. We we shoot the first um, episode in July, so I can't.
0: So I, I saw you gave like some rules for young people coming up that uh, I saw on on a YouTube, and one of them was don't sleep with artists. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> well, yeah. you think that's a bad thing?
1: When you're trying to be taken seriously in the business, yeah, definitely. It kind of erodes your, your credibility.
0: But it's been and, a road to success for many, I bet, right?
1: I guess, but I, w- I wouldn't advise it. I I, wouldn't I advise always, it. I, I'm always very grateful that because I was a hip-hop chick before I ever worked at Vibe, And by the time I got the vibe, I was 28 years old. So I'd already dated all the rappers I was ever going to (laughs) really date. So by the time I got there and I started going over to Europe and actually bringing artists over to Europe, which is a very intimate thing to do because, you know, they don't know anyone. They're far away from home and they they always want comfort. They want to hang out all night long. But I was able to decline because I knew what it was. Like I'd already done that. You brought
0: Tupac to Europe, right?
1: I didn't bring Tupac, but um five did, yeah.
0: That was did. that
1: was my that was prior to me. Yeah.
0: Oh, that was prior to you. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I know how you could have resisted Tupac. Oh no, no, I, no, I knew ask. Tupac.
1: <laughs> no, I knew Tupac. Yeah, he was a friend. Okay. Yeah, so I, I didn't sleep with him but we were friends and I wouldn't have slept with him in the
0: Okay, well, we'll have to get to part two or read the book to find out who <laughs> yes. you did sleep with, right? <laughs> no, I'm not naming names. <laughs> i not, not, it's, not names. it's not a tell-all.
1: No, it's actually a book about how I created this life that I wanted, and I did it against all the odds.
0: And tell us the name of the book again.
1: Revelations, Lessons from a Mother, Auntie, and Bestie. And mother is M-U-T-H-A, which is a um, term of endearment that my gay sons, have given me and a lot of young gay men that encounter me on TV. And if they see me in real life, they're like mother. And it's a beautiful thing. And then auntie is like what young women tend to call me. And then bestie is what women of my, my peer group that seem on TV. They're like, I feel like you're my best friend. I feel like we would be besties. And I'm like, okay. So it's my lessons that I'm giving out from a perspective of a mother
0: auntie and bestie and bevy most of all thank you very much for being on my show today look oh, forward to pleasure. reading your book and this unnamed can you even give us the name of this tv show or no, nothing? nothing zero <laughs> well people look forward to that this summer <laughs> yet yeah, i can't wait to see it this thank summer. you so much Bevy. no oh,
1: i love you david thank you babe
0: Bye. <laughs> you've been listening to light culture You can find us at ShopBurb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at ShopBurb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening.